Jesus loves me, this I know, for my Bible tells me so. That was a song we learned when we was just little children. Probably the most popular song that you will teach a little bitty baby is that Jesus loves them. The most important thing any person will ever know in their whole life is that Jesus loves them. In this upper room scene, the very first thing we see, you know, Jesus said this. He said, with great desire, I desire to have this meal with you. He said, I desire to meet with you. And then in John, it says this. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the father, having loved his own that were in the world, he loved them unto the end to the end. This love is so important that we understand, but God commended this love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God. Why? For God is love. God is love. Kenneth Weiss, Kenneth Weiss, a, a, a Bible commentator, he wrote this about this word love. It's in the Greek language. It's the word agape, the agape love. It is different than, than a phileo love. It's another word that the Greek people would use to describe affection. You know, phileo means friendship. It means reciprocal. In other words, in other words, I will have affection toward you if you will have affection toward me. If you scratch my back, I will I'll scratch your back. In other words, it, this kind of love and affection, it's all based on what you get out of it. And boy, that's the kind of love we see today, isn't it? A love that's reciprocal. It's only given if it's, if it's received. You see, that's not the love that God has for you. That's not the love. That's not the word that's used in scripture for God's love towards you. Kenneth Weiss says this about agape. It's a love of esteem. It's the highest regarded word in the Greek language. Agape love is not kindled. Watch this now. This is so important. It's not kindled by the merit or worth of its object, but it originates in its own giving nature. God's love is not based on who you are. It's based on who he is. It's a giving love for God. So loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, the son loved you so much. He gave his life. It's a giving love. It's not based on what he receives. Listen <laughs> in first John First John four, seven and eight, it says, beloved, let us love one another for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not, watch this now, knoweth not God for God is love. now, now I've heard people say this a lot. I just don't know. I just don't know how God could love a sinner like me. I don't know how God could love someone who's done what I've done and someone who has a past like I have. I got good news for you. It's not about you. God's love is not based on your performance. God's love is not based on your behavior. God's love is not based on who you are. God's love is based solely upon who he is. 
Why does God love you? Because he's love. Why does God think the way he thinks about you? Because he's love. Why does God forgive the unforgivable? Because he's love. That's his nature. Look at this. This is so good. I'm sorry. I'm just enjoying this. If nobody else is, I'm enjoying it. Agape love delights in giving. It delights in giving. This kind of love keeps on giving, even though the recipient is unresponsive, even though the recipient is unloving, even though the recipient is unworthy, even though the recipient is unkind. Why? Because it's an unconditional love. Say that with me. It's a Everybody say it in the balcony. Say it with me. You ready? It's a, it's an unconditional love. You say, how do we know that? How, how do we see that this is an unconditional love? Do you realize, do you realize in this upper room when Jesus said, I cannot wait, I cannot wait to have this meal with them. He knew he was going to depart. He knew his time was short to be with his disciples, but yet he longed for it. He desired it. He could not wait to have this meal with them. And it said he loved them until the end. You know what? He loved the one that was going to betray him. Even though he knew in this night after this meal, Judas would betray him. He loved him anyway. He knew Peter would deny him, but he loved him anyway. He knew they would all abandon him, but he loved them anyway. God's love for you. It's, listen, it's unmerited. It's undeserved. But thank God for us, it's unconditional. You don't have to do a blessed thing for God to love you. You don't have to fix one single error, fault, issue in your life for God to love you. He loves you just like you are. How do you know that? But God commendeth, Romans 5, but God commendeth. That means he put on display. He said, I don't want to just tell you I love you. I want to show you I love you. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait till we got better. He didn't wait till we fixed everything. He didn't wait till we got straightened up. He loved the one that was nailing him to a cross. And he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. When you leave today, I need you to leave knowing this. Jesus loves you. This I know for my Bible tells me so. God's son, the son of God, God, the son, God in flesh, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of everything there is, was washing feet. He was doing the job of a slave, a servant in the culture of that day. When, when there would be an event, when there would be a celebration, the host of the event would, would send a slave or a servant to, as the guests were coming in to wash their feet because their feet would get dusty in the, the, the roads there in Jerusalem or in Judea. And, and this was a job of the lowest person in the household on the totem pole of importance. It was at the very bottom, but yet we see the son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord, he gets down and washes their feet. Why in the world would he do that? Why would he do the job of a slave? Why would he stoop so low? 
as to do a job nobody else would want to do. Well, you have to know what was going on. You see, the disciples still had issues. They were, they were the chosen. They were the called. God had picked them to be his messengers, his disciples, but yet they still struggled with pride. They still struggled with an inner desire to be important, to be looked at as someone great. And, and they were arguing over the point, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? You see, Jesus, he had three that were really tight that he would take them because he had special, special things for them to accomplish, Peter, James, and John. And, and then you have the other disciples and there is a, there is a kind of a, a going back and forth. Even one of the mothers joined in this situation and went to Jesus and said, hey, can one of my sons sit on one side and one of my sons sit on the other? They were wanting to know who's going to be the most important. Well, Jesus had already told them. He had already explained to them, look, if you want to be great, you got to be humble. If you want to be chief, you have to be servant. If you want to go up, you got to go down. You see, God's economy works opposite. If you want to, if you want to receive, you got to give. If you want to go up, you got to go down. Humble thyself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due season. They were arguing, they were fussing. Who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus, after he had given them the lesson earlier and it didn't take, that's kind of not unusual in the church. Amen. He said, I'm not just going to, I'm not just going to tell them. I'm going to show them. And so he gives a visual illustration. He doesn't just say, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to live. This is how I want you to behave. He gets down and does it for them. And he illustrates this point of humility and serving one another. And he describes how important it is to humble yourself. You see, this was the epitome of Jesus while he was here on this earth. In Philippians, we learned that the Bible says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. In other words, God humbled himself and became man. Not so we, he could be, not so he could be served, but he said, so I can serve others. And if you want to know what it's like to be Christ-like, we call ourselves Christians, but are we? Christian means Christ-like, like Christ. If we're going to be like Christ, we have to be humble. We have to be willing to serve one another. You see, this world tells you it's about what you can get. It's about happiness and fulfillment is found in what people can do for you or what you can have, what you can possess, what you can buy. But you know what Jesus said? Y'all see what I've done? Y'all see what I've done? You see, you see I, your master and Lord, have washed your feet. He said, if you see what I've done, then you should do this one for another. You should humble yourself too. You should be willing to serve one another too. And then he throws this in. He said, not only should you, we have an obligation. Not only should you, but happy are ye if ye do them. You know what he just did? He just taught the whole world the secret to happiness. The secret to fulfillment. You know, happiness is marketed in this culture and in this world by what you can buy. You know, you know McDonald's, McDonald's markets happiness to your little rug rat by that little happy meal. Get it? Happy 
meal. They want your money. So they convince your child, if he doesn't get a happy meal, he will never experience happiness in life. And you know what? We never grow out of that mentality. But Jesus has said, you want to be happy? You want want true fulfillment in life? Learn to humble yourself. Pick up a towel and serve your neighbor. What an important lesson Jesus taught the whole world in that upper room. This meal, this, this supper was the Passover meal. And Jesus taught them the most important lesson that we're going to learn today. You see, we have to go all the way back to Exodus. We have to go back to the nation of Israel in bondage in Egypt. And to make a long story short, God was going to deliver his people. His people were under bondage to a taskmaster, to a slave driver, if you will, named Pharaoh. Just as people today are under a taskmaster named Satan. And he said, I'm going to set my people free. And Moses goes and brings plague after plague after plague against Pharaoh in Egypt to get them to deliver the people, to set the people free. And Pharaoh's heart is hard. And he will not let them go until the very last plague. And God said, now is the time. I'm going to send a death angel. That death angel represents judgment. It represents death. It is going to come and it's going to pass by. And the firstborn of every household will die. The firstborn represents the heritage of the house. They will die. God told Adam and Eve the day that you eat of this fruit that I tell you not to, ye shall surely die. die. And judgment will come. Death will always come upon rebellion and sin. And he said, but I'm going to give you a way of escape. And he tells the nation of Israel, he tells them, if you will take a lamb, a spotless lamb, take that lamb and kill that lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel, on the covering of the inside of the door. When that death angel comes and he sees the blood, he will pass over you. In other words, judgment is coming. Death is coming. But when he sees the blood, he will pass over you. You will be safe. You will be delivered. And then he says, I want you to take that lamb and I want you to roast that lamb and eat that lamb. That lamb is going to give you strength. That lamb is going to give you what you need because the journey is long. I'm going to take you to a place of milk and honey. And every year, every year afterwards, I want you to have this same meal. I want you to take a lamb and I want you to sacrifice that lamb. I want you to cook that lamb and eat that lamb. And remember that there was a day that you were in bondage. There was a day that you were in slavery. And what brought you out by the blood of the lamb? What delivered you from death? What delivered you from the judgment that was coming? It was the blood of the lamb. And here is the important part. 
You see, God has a desire and he has a, a really cool way of showing you in the Old Testament what is coming in the New Testament. In many ways, he draws and shows you pictures of what's to happen in the New Testament. And what Jesus taught them that night, the most important lesson they'll ever learn. He took that bread and he broke the bread and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. As often as you do this, do in remembrance of me. He said he took the cup. He said, this cup is my blood, the new covenant that I'm shedding for your deliverance. This lamb, what he was saying, this lamb that you have eaten every single year, this meal that you've partaken in, it wasn't just a religious tradition. It wasn't just a religious activity. It was God telling you every single year that there's coming a lamb. Every single year he was pointing to the New Testament and saying, listen, there is coming a Messiah. There is coming a deliverance. There is someone who will deliver you from your sin. You're in bondage to sin. We're chained by sin. But John Baptist, that hellfire and brimstone preacher who was preaching on the side of the banks of the Jordan, when he was asked, are you him? He said, I'm not him. I'm not even worthy to latch his shoes. I'm baptizing with water, but there's one coming after me who will baptize with fire and the Holy Ghost. And here comes Jesus. Jesus says, I need you to baptize me. He said, oh my goodness, I, I'm not even worthy to stand in your presence. He said, but let it be so. So he baptized Jesus. The spirit of God descended as a dove upon him. That was confirmation to John Baptist that this was the deliverer. This was the Messiah. This was the promised one to come. The next day, John's out there doing his thing, preaching. Preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and turn to God, preparing the way for the Messiah. And he sees Jesus walking down the riverbank and watch, watch, watch it here. Here it is. This is what he said. Behold the lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Do you realize that Passover lamb was God trying to tell the people that he is going to give his son as a Passover lamb. He's going to give his son as a sacrifice for their sin so they could be delivered from the judgment to come. Why blood preacher? Why did it take a sacrifice in the garden? God said, you can have any tree you want. Except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If the day that you take of that, the day you rebel, the day you sin, ye shall surely And you know what? From the beginning of time, man has died. Every generation has died. Every generation has died. Nobody gets out of this thing alive. But here's the thing. God says, I've got to conquer death. How do you conquer death? Well... How do you conquer darkness with light? How do you conquer the cold with the heat? How do you you conquer death with life? You know, the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Why? Because it also says it's in the blood. The blood carries life. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And when that blood is offered, it is offering life. And life always conquers death. 